Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew, The Temptations of Jesus. We should finish them up today. Um, so remember what I've said so far, which is, is that there's a difference between the way Judaism understands the Satan, because in the Old Testament, it's always that way, the Satan. So it, it's not a proper name in the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament. So there's a difference between those two things. The Satan is more like a job description. It's more like his job is to tempt us. In order that, we could be strong in our faith and strong in resistance against temptation generally. So in, in, the, in the New Testament, it's remarkably different. But right now, as far as we can see in this passage so far, it looks remarkably similar. There's not a huge difference. What he's doing, he's tempting Jesus um, to presume on his um, sonship. He asked him, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread, because he had fasted for 40 days. Now, after Jesus quotes scripture at him on that one, and that scripture again has to do with the time of prosperity and what they're supposed to do, what Moses says the people should do as a, as a sort of an antidote for uh, failing to worship God, is to remember the time in the wilderness that God tempted them there in order that he would make them strong and they would understand and know that man lives by bread alone, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so that's where we left off yesterday, was Jesus quoting that scripture to say there's more important stuff in life than food, even. So, after that one, the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. So the first one was the, the presumption of doing something that he had the power to do, turn stones into bread. This time, it, it's something totally different. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He'll command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil learned something there, and now he's quoting the Word of God. He is quoting it back, and this is um, <clears throat> from Psalm 90. So he quotes these, these two passages and said, look, it's a promise, right? It's in the Scriptures. There's a promise in Scripture that he will command his angels concerning you. So if you throw yourself down off the temple, he'll send angels to rescue you from that. And on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Isn't that right? Isn't that what Scripture says? I mean, that's exactly the way he's coming at this. Uh, maybe he learned something way back in the garden when he said, did God really say? And Eve didn't know. Right? So Jesus had already quoted Scripture with response to, to the temptation that was first posed to him. So now he says, okay, I can quote Scripture too. He knows it just as well as, as anybody. So he, he bases this entire temptation in Scripture itself. Hey, what could be wrong with that, right? Let's just give it a shot. You know, and it sounds remarkably familiar, to be honest with you. There are so many places now, there's so many churches even that teach this same kind of thing, you know, that God's bound to do this, that, and the other thing because, well, that's what Scripture says, but that's not true. No. And Jesus gives the lie to that right here. <clears throat> he says to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So where does that one come from? Where does Jesus get that passage that he quotes there? <clears throat> 
and it comes from Deuteronomy 6.16, and that's not quite the whole passage. The rest of the, the sentence is this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And, and so what was the test at Massa? And that goes back to Exodus, right? So it's the first test when, when they quarrel over the, the water. And so it's Exodus 17, 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that's exactly the, the test that the devil has put to Jesus here. He's, he wants him to test and see if God's with him or not. If you're the son of God, do this, because God's promised he won't let you be harmed. And, and no, it, it, that's the same test, to say, is God with us or not? And, and so Jesus appropriately quotes this passage from, um, Gen- or from, sorry, from Deuteronomy 6, and, and this is one of the things that you need to know and understand about the way that, that Jesus uses Scripture and the way not just that Jesus used Scripture, but that rabbis use Scripture. And part of the reason that he is frequently referred to by other people as rabbi, including by Nicodemus. <clears throat> and, and we see it again and again. People refer to him as a rabbi, and that's because he taught like a rabbi. And the way a rabbi taught wouldn't necessarily be to quote a huge passage, they would quote a part of a passage, and quoting a part of that passage, that their expectation would be that you're well-versed enough in Scripture that you'll know where it came from, came from, what its context was, and what its meaning was. He does exactly that at the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's from Psalm 22, and if you read all of Psalm 22, what you'll discover is, is that, oh, along the way, there's a great reversal in this. God is glorified at the end of this thing. And so the, the, it presaged in so many ways the, the resurrection, that today is not the final word on something. And so here when Jesus quotes that portion, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, that then the expectation that a rabbi would have if he's speaking to someone who, who he presumes knows Scripture would be that they would understand the rest of the context of that. They would understand those things. And so when, when, it's, when Jesus says that he does things by the finger of God, there would be an expectation when he said that, that they, the, the, his interlocutors, would understand that he's pointing back to the magicians in Egypt who are unable to bring forth the life that Moses did with the gnats. They said this is done by the finger of God, which is a creative thing, as opposed to turning water into blood and all those other things that are just magic, right? So they're unable to do this, and they said, so this is done by the finger of God. It's a higher power than we have. And so when Jesus says, I do things by the finger of God, he's pointing back to that passage and equating himself with God at the same time. He does these things by the finger of God. And so he's equating himself with God and also placing himself in the shoes of Moses, which is great because that's Leviticus. There's a promise that a prophet like him will arise. So here, when Jesus quotes a portion of the sentence, then then the expectation would be, if you're a rabbinic teacher teaching your students, for instance, the expectation would be that you would get the entire uh, message that was being sent there. And so they would quote a portion of something in order to imply the whole. And so here it's a perfect retort to uh, Satan's quoting of Scripture in the temptation itself. 
because Satan quoted Scripture pretty much out of context. It had nothing to do with uh, throwing yourself down and, and putting the Lord to the test. No, Jesus understood what the test was, and the test was to, 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 to question whether or not God was with him. So again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, there is where we get a dramatic departure. In all these things, we really are getting a dramatic departure, mostly because it's direct. It's, it's a direct um, confrontation between a man, we know that he is the divine man, but uh, between humanity and the Satan. Normally that's not the case. It's not so straightforward. You don't see that anywhere in Scripture. If you want to say that that's who it is in the garden in Genesis 3, well, you've got to account for one thing, then why did he, why did he disguise himself? So here, this is straightforward. He is not disguising himself. He is not hidden in any shape, form, or fashion. So there, that's one of the differences that he, he is bringing this frontal assault because Jesus has gone onto his territory, into the wilderness, the, the place where the demonic is. And as I said, that's you know, think about sending out the scapegoat. You send it out into the wilderness to Asasel. So that the wilderness places are always considered to be uh, haunts of demons. And so here he offers him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory on one condition. If you fall down and worship me. Now, that is a radical departure from anything Jewish people, Jewish rabbis, anybody today would say about Satan. He's not asking for worship. Here, it's obvious that he set himself up as a rival to the God of Israel. When he off, when he, he he is willing to receive worship, in return for the kingdoms of the world, Jesus will ultimately receive all the kingdoms of the world after sin is judged and after the the fallen angels have been judged and sinful humanity who has rejected him have been judged. And so, Jesus is willing to wait. He didn't come to receive this these kingdoms now. He came to receive these kingdoms later after the victory is complete. But but it says a lot about the distinction between the Satan in the New Testament and Satan in the Old Testament. And as I said yesterday, this this was not out of line during the intertestamental period. Most Jewish people would have been well aware of that, of this this idea that that he is more than a tempter. More than an angel doing his job, he is a rival, and, and he and is the hater, hater of humankind, those who were created in the image of God and have a special status because we were set up to rule and reign over the earth as his proxies. You know, so he created a world in which we could live and he could come, but we're his proxies to rule over it, and that's the reason that we were given dominion. And Satan was not given dominion. <clears throat> but God couldn't make a home with sinful humanity. And so the home that he made ends up first being the tabernacle. That's the whole point of the tabernacle, is for God to have a dwelling place on earth because we messed up his other dwelling place on earth, which would have been the Garden of Eden. And again, contrast gardens and wildernesses. Garden is the place where God lives. The wilderness is a place where demons live. And so you make that contrast, 
and then you can begin to see the distinction between the two. But the tabernacle was intended to be a garden of sorts in which God could dwell among his people. And remember what I said yesterday from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, that, that Jacob is his possession. So he dwelt among them. And if you look at the accoutrement and the um, the decoration of the tabernacle and the temple, because the the the, taber- the temple is just a permanent tabernacle. It, there's it, it's the same design, but it, but it's now in a permanent form. But what you see is a garden. You see uh, fruits and vegetables and all this other stuff. And so essentially, it's a fenced-in garden, and that's the place where God dwells on earth. He dwells among men in that way. And so now the kingdoms of the world are being offered to Jesus. And we know from that same passage in, uh, in, in both the Babel passage in, in Genesis 10 and then also Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, he divided up the nations according to the number of the sons of God, who are the angels who oversee those places. And so Satan says, I've got most of those because Jacob is the possession of Yahweh. And but but. As luck would have it, God's people have since been scattered by this time to Babylon and Egypt and all kinds of other places. They've been scattered among the nations, and so there are beachheads established in those places where, where God's people live. The intention is for them to be in the land, but they've decided to remain out there and continue to practice their Judaism, and then they come back for festivals. And so among the kingdoms of the earth are God's people. And now what we're given the task of doing is going and claiming those kingdoms for Jesus. And so when we, when we go forward in evangelism, when we do church planting, when we do all of those things, the mission work and everything else, then what we're doing is we're saying this is God's, this belongs to Yahweh, and we belong to Yahweh. And so we're proclaiming spiritual warfare. We are proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, and we've established a place for him to be in this place, and we will continue to proclaim him. And and that's the power there. But but here what we see is Satan offering Jesus kingdoms in return for worship, which makes the, the Satan of the Old Testament immediately, even as the first time we've encountered him in the New Testament, it, it makes him immediately different and distinct from that Satan in the Old Testament. And, and so what we're seeing already is a radical uh, change in the way this is understood, but it's not a complete break with Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism, yes. Judaism at large, no, because the literature of the intertestamental period shows this Satan to be this way. Uh, maybe what I'll do sometime in the near future is a study of the book of First Enoch with you, and, and you'll be amazed, absolutely amazed, at how much you know and how much you believe that actually comes from First Enoch, and then you'll begin to see it in the, in the New Testament, in all the New Testament writings as well. So we'll, we'll do that soon. I mean, it'll take a while now to get through with Matthew, but, but after that, we'll do Enoch. So Jesus' response, be gone, Satan. Done with you. You've gone a bridge too far. Get out of here. For it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus again just quotes scripture back at him. Satan's got nothing left at this point. All he has to offer him is what he believes that he has. What he doesn't understand is all those things will ultimately be taken away from him. If he can defeat this Messiah now, 
they may be his permanently. Because he's looking at that and saying, all right, this is my last chance. I've got to defeat this one. And so what does he do? He offers him the desires of his heart. But Jesus says, I'm willing to wait on that big fella. I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to do the work necessary to have those kingdoms throughout all eternity. I'm in no hurry to have it today. But his quote here is from Deuteronomy 6, again, verses 13 to 15, which is the part that immediately precedes the part about not putting God to test. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And so that's what Jesus quotes in response to Satan offering him all the kingdoms of the earth in return for his worship. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so he was alone, but at this point, though, finally, after the temptations are done, after he has said, be gone, Satan, and he'll say something really remarkably like that to Peter later, won't he? Get behind me, Satan. Because what did Peter offer him? A kingdom without a cross. No, 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 you're not going to be crucified. He offered him the same route that Satan did. And that's why he turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. Right after, he told him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven when Peter has made his confession that Jesus is the Christ. But he got it so remarkably wrong that, that what I believe is is that right there Jesus was so heavily reminded of this encounter of kingdom without a cross that he had no choice but to say that. And so now that they're gone, now that he's gone, the angels come and they begin to minister to Jesus. It's another moment like, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He has indeed sent his angels to minister to him, just as Satan quoted in that second temptation. God is with him. God loves him. He is his son. He stared down these temptations and stands before God now. And God sends angels to minister to him. What a blessed, blessed thing that is. Imagine what it would look like if we got better at that. Imagine what it would look like if we knew the word of God well enough that we could always speak it in any circumstance where we were tempted, and we also had the will to speak it against those temptations. What a different world it would be and what a difference it would make in our lives if we stood that strongly in times of temptation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.